possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's head in the other direction, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in the day when I was the primary cook for our household of six, it felt like I was constantly chopping and mixing and baking and serving and cleaning up. We've never had a home with a large kitchen, but no matter how small, it always had enough room to gather, even if there was little space in between us. There were days when I cooked with a baby in a backpack, a toddler in a high chair, and two hungry preschoolers at my feet. I could barely turn around without stepping on a pet or Legos or Hot Wheels, and someone was always touching me. I learned to live with little personal space, and the rare occasions when I could take a nap felt like a sacrament. So perhaps it's not surprising that I come at our gospel today through the lens of tired women everywhere. Because a very shallow reading of this text finds Simon Peter's nameless mother-in-law, who was likely an older woman about my age, who had a fever and was taking what we used to call a little lie down, a rest. Then Jesus and four of the disciples come straight from the synagogue to her home. And Jesus takes her by the hand, raises her up, and immediately she begins serving them. This was very convenient because I can tell you from experience that a group of five men coming home from anywhere and any activity are always hungry. But of course, there's another way to read this story, one which recognizes the healing that takes place in this tiny Christian community where serving others is far from a lowly role, but in fact is the highest calling of all. These two sparse verses which describe the woman's encounter with Jesus provide critical clues, and that helps us to understand more about who Jesus is and what we're meant to do if we choose to follow him. The first thing to notice again here is the rapid-fire pace of the Gospel of Mark, widely accepted as the first of the Gospels to be written. In this chapter alone, we keep hearing the word immediately. It's used eight times. It's used twice in our text today. Because Jesus is a man on a mission, a man on the move, and we are expected to keep up 
He makes his way from the waters of baptism, deals with Satan in the wilderness, announces the impending reign of God on earth, and calls those first followers and shows power over a demon in a worship space. And just now, Jesus and the four disciples with him have exited the doors of the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship, and now they come into the doors of a home, which as everyone recognized who first heard this gospel, was the normal place for Christian worship. We're not told much about Simon Peter's mother-in-law other than her fever renders her unable to function and confined to her home. Remember the days when a little fever was no big deal? But during the pandemic, of course, having a temperature bars us from all kinds of things, including school and work and serving others. It isolates us in our own homes. It creates even more space between our bodies and others. And we've had to find ways to connect without physical presence, without the comfort of holding somebody's hand when you pray for them, or touching their shoulder, or communicating God's grace through a hug. And yet, and yet we have found ways to bless the space between us. We still pray for healing in other people's bodies even when we can't be there to touch them. We strive for healings and relationships challenged by distance and stress. We can be open to sensing love and encouragement and grace that comes through a computer or a phone screen or a voice at the other end of a line. And we've learned to read compassion just by seeing someone's eyes above their mask. We become more aware of the space between our own lived experience and that of others very different from us. And we become sensitive, I think, even more to the plight of tired women and men everywhere. Gerald May, who wrote a book called Addiction and Grace, notes God's grace through community involves something far greater than other people's support and perspective the power of grace is nowhere as brilliant nor as mystical as in communities of faith. Its power includes not just love that comes from people and through people, but love that pours forth among people as if through the very spaces between one person and the next. Just to be in such an atmosphere is to be bathed in healing power. Well, when Jesus heals someone in the Gospels, not only does he restore them to health, but he restores them to hearth, to wholeness, to home. When Jesus heard about the condition of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, he went to her and he touched her and he didn't simply heal her, but he raised her up and we should notice there, that's the same word used for the resurrection. He raised her up. He restored her to health and to hearth and to community. And her response to this healing is variously translated in your Bibles as she waited on them, cooked for them, served them. And those are not lowly tasks. 
Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus will lift up this call to serve as essential to discipleship by telling his own squabbling disciples who argue about power that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. And that little word that we have difficulty knowing whether to say serve or wait on them or cook for them, that little word in these translations is diakona. And if you recognize it, it's the same word from which we get the word deacon. So in essence, this woman so recently raised up from her sickbed becomes the first deacon. She ministers out of her own wounds. She was healed and then she served. And almost immediately, if you notice, that very night at sunset, there are even more people at her door. People who need healing and hope. And perhaps they gathered around her small kitchen as she cooked and they all prayed and people were set free and the powers of evil were vanquished. John O'Donohue is the author of a collection of prayers called To Bless the Space Between Us. And he writes in there, what is a blessing? A blessing, he says, is a circle of light drawn around a person to protect, heal, and strengthen. When we pray blessing for someone else, we too can imagine a circle of God's light around that person. The Quakers speak of praying for others as holding them in the light. In God's light, we trust that healing will take place even if it's a different form of healing than what we imagine or hope for. We can pray a prayer of blessing or healing even if there's physical space between us. And maybe especially when there's significant space between us. Sometimes we get to see the healing close up as it occurs through doctors and nurses and in countless hospital rooms where love grows even in suffering. One doctor named Richard Selzer recalled his time in a room with a patient post-surgery when he wrote, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted, palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed to remove the tumor in her cheek. I had cut the little nerve. The young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And then he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, 
and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate her, to show her that their kiss still works. I hold my breath and let the wonder in. How do we bless the space between us even as we accommodate one another's incomplete healing in this life? How do we keep praying and keep working for the things of God, for justice and for peace? How do we keep trusting in a God who promises to lift us up on eagles' wings so we can run and not be tired and walk and not be faint when we are so weary? I know that one of the ways I need to grow is to pay attention to the distance between my lived experience as a white person and the lived experience of people of color. And this Lenten season will offer an opportunity for book-based discussion that reflects on American slavery and biblical texts. And quite often those stories contain a depth of faith and persistence in prayer that I can only imagine. Recently, I read about Ida B. Wells, journalist, educator, early leader in the civil rights movement. In The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone highlights her pioneering work in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He says she awakened the conscience of the nation to the horrors of lynching, though her work was shunned by white Christians and even black ministers. And when asked what sustained her, she spoke of her faith, formed and nurtured by her ex-slave parents, a faith defined by the cross of Jesus and black resistance to white supremacy. Cone narrates her story of a clandestine visit that she made in disguise and at risk to her life to 12 condemned Arkansas prisoners who survived the massacre of nearly 300 blacks in Elaine, Arkansas in 1919. When the prisoners insisted, we are innocent, but all we can do is pray to the Lord and sing and time passes on. Wells came back and admonished them with these words. She said, why don't you pray to live and ask to be freed? The God you serve is the God of Paul and Silas who opened the prison gates. And if you have all the faith you say you have, you ought to believe that God will open your prison doors too. Later, once they were acquitted by the Supreme Court, one of the freed prisoners told Wells' family that after her visit, we never talked about dying anymore, but did as she told us, and now every last one of us is free. What if we lived with that kind of bold faith in the liberating and healing power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, we are so in need of healing. 
in our bodies and in our minds, in our relationships and in our communities, and holy God in our nation. And for anyone who finds themselves sick in soul or in body, isolated by circumstances or oppression, in need of healing, that the words from the prophet Isaiah, those, those words convey profoundly good news that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. It's time to raise up some bold prayers. You who have known the salvation and healing of God, this is the time to serve. This is the time to do more than let time pass on. This is our discipleship. To boldly pray, to fearlessly hope, to heal, to reconcile, to imagine a circle of God's light around tired women and men everywhere, around your neighbor, around the stranger, to bless all the spaces between us in every way that we can. Amen.